You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, friends, we are continuing this morning through Paul's letter to the Romans. It's been a good journey. This is the 45th of 48 messages in this wonderful book. We've acknowledged at several points, but it's been a few weeks since we've been in Romans and Christmas and New Year and a whole host of things have happened. We acknowledged that for 11 chapters, and we're thankful that for 11 chapters, Paul expounded the gospel. He helped us better understand how the gospel is the revelation of righteousness that God gives to sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. And then beginning in chapter 12, Paul pivots appropriately to consider how we will then live. In light of Christ, in light of the gospel, in light of this great salvation that has been given to us, how do we live? There were about nine or ten verses from Romans 12 and Romans 13 that speak to our interactions with those outside the church. We are to do them good. We are to do good to those outside the church, regardless of how they treat us. And we are to subject ourselves to civil government as God's ordained institution of order and justice in this common kingdom. But the vast majority of what Paul has written, Romans 12, Romans 13, Romans 14, and now Romans 15, has to do with our lives as a part of the church. How do we, as God's people, in God's institution called the church, how do we live together? Paul's repeated emphases have been love for one another, humility in how we interact, and unity amongst us. Love, humility, unity. And these, by the way, are not just the repeated emphases of Paul in Romans. These are the repeated emphases of the apostles across the New Testament. It's really important that we would see that and embrace that and take it to heart. And we're going to see these themes again today. So with all that by way of introduction pulling us in, open your Bibles to Romans 15. We're going to be considering Romans 15 verses 1 to 13 today. And I would refer you back to the two sermons from Romans chapter 14 because some of that subject matter is not only relevant for our text today, but it leads directly into it. So I entrust those messages to you. But allow me to make a few comments while you're turning to Romans 15 about what Paul had written in the previous chapter. The weak in faith, Paul says, are to be welcomed in the church. In other words, the church is not just for the strong, right? This is not Green Beret Christianity. It's for the weak as well. But, Paul says, quarreling over opinions, arguing over debatable matters is not the purpose of that welcoming. To argue over matters of wisdom and conscience is not good. The strong in the church, those who understand and often exercise liberty that they have in Christ, 
are not to despise those who don't understand or exercise. And the weak in the church, those who do not understand their liberties and therefore would not exercise them, they are not to pass judgment on those who do understand and exercise. In all of this, we must remember that we all serve Jesus. He is our master. He is the one who is in authority over our consciences. All of us, as disciples of Christ, are upheld by him. We are made to stand by him, by his power, his grace. And whether weak or strong, we all belong to him. All the saints, in exercising our liberties or abstaining from them, all of the saints of God intend to love, honor, and serve the Lord. It's what we mean to do. And so, even if we disagree about how best to do that, we are to love and respect one another. Paul reminded us that one day we will all stand before the Lord. In other words, only Jesus occupies the judgment seat. And this, as we think about that day of judgment, should evoke in us the greatest humility because on that day, we will not stand in our own merit. We'll stand in Christ or not at all. All of these things should inform how we interact. So says Paul, let's no longer judge each other. Let's not do that. Instead, let's love one another. Let's have love govern our exercise of freedom. And let's only pursue what will produce peace in the church. Let's only pursue what is good for the upbuilding of the body of Christ. If you're strong in faith, you have a robust understanding of your liberties in Christ, Paul says, enjoy that before the Lord. Enjoy that. It's a good place to be. If you are weaker in faith, not yet having understanding of your liberties, do not violate your conscience. Live sincerely in the faith that the Lord has given you, even as you seek to train your conscience according to God's word. That's Romans 14. So let's now look to Romans 15. Again, we will be considering verses 1 through 13. Listen now as I read. This is the word of God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs 
and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. May it be. We thank God for his word today and every day. I have three points for us this morning. Point number one, Jesus is the basis of our unity. Point one, Jesus is the basis of our unity, verses one through seven. Just public service announcement, this will be the longest of the three points, so don't be anxious if it takes us a minute to get through it. In verse 1, if you put your eyes there, Paul writes of the obligation of the strong in the church. And he says that is to bear with the weak. Those in the church who are strong in faith, what's the obligation? It is to bear with the weak. Sounds like God, does it not? You remember back in chapter 12 and verse 3, Paul had written that God assigns the measure of faith that each saint possesses. You remember that language? According to the measure of faith that God has given you. God, we know, is the one who grants faith. Faith is his gift to us. And he distributes it according to his holy purposes and will. And he determines the degree of its strength in each person. So, it only follows then that God grants some saints strong faith or greater measures of understanding. And he does that for a good and holy purpose. Now, just a brief aside, it's, it's easy for us sometimes to forget some of these things that I've just said, and think that strong faith comes from our attention to the means of grace, or strong faith comes from our own personal practices. Now, it is certainly true that our faith grows through the means of grace. It is certainly true that our faith is helped through the study of Scripture and prayer and other practices. That is all true. But all of this in thinking about how our faith grows, is akin to what Paul wrote about church planting in 1 Corinthians 3. You remember that? Where he said there, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. May we remember that. We apply the means, we establish sound practices, and God gives the growth. All right, back, back to our main point here. God gives the strong in the church greater faith and understanding for a reason. And that reason is not so that they can please themselves. 
It's not directly for their own benefit. God gives the strong in the church greater measures of faith and understanding for the mutual benefit of the whole body and pointedly for the benefit of the weak. So while we're here, I'm not sure if you were asked to make a list of the things that characterize Christian maturity. What are the marks of a mature Christian? I'm not sure what you would write down. But let's say this from Romans 15, 1. That gentleness toward the weak, patience with the weak, mercy toward the weak, compassion toward the weak are marks of Christian maturity and are marks of strength. So if those things aren't on your list of the marks of a mature Christian, you need to change your list. They should be there. The more mature we become, the more gentle we become. The more mature we become, the more patient we become. Because sometimes I think we get the wrong impression. That the more mature we become, the more exacting we become. Shouldn't be that way. Verse 2. All of this we see is for the purpose of edification. You say edify what, bro? Edification. The building up of the body of Christ, the whole church. It's pretty simple, really. You can see from verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Really simple. We should seek to do everything possible in accord with God's truth to do our neighbor good and build him up. Verse 3. As he so often does, Paul appeals to Jesus that we might look at him and that we might consider him. He says of Christ that Jesus did not please himself, or in other words, Jesus did not seek his own interests. He sought the interests of others. Namely, he sought your interests and my interests, our interests. He came in order to accomplish our salvation. Paul cites a portion of Psalm 69 in verse 9. The entirety of that verse, Psalm 69, 9, reads this way. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, Psalm 69 is written by David, and here's Paul again, just yet again, putting the words of David into the mouth of Jesus. Just see that. But what he's arguing for, inciting Psalm 69.9, that zeal for your house, Lord, has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Paul says, you see, it was Christ's zeal for the Lord's house. It was Christ's zeal for, hear, hear this, his body, the church, right? That's the Lord's house that motivated him. It was a concern for God's honor that motivated him. And so Paul's point to us is the following. If zeal for the body of Christ 
and for God's honor, consumes the strong in the church. If the strong in the church are consumed with a zeal for the church and a zeal for the honor of the Lord, then they will be all the more willing to bear with the weak. That's the point. Verse 4. Paul states that God gave us the scriptures for our instruction and for our endurance and for our encouragement. He inserts this, it seems, as a reason for appealing to Psalm 69. Why it's here and not in other places when he cites scripture, we leave that to the Lord. But it is clear and obviously true that the Lord has given us the scriptures on purpose. He's given them to us for our instruction, for our endurance, and for our encouragement, says Paul. We are instructed by the scriptures about Christ, of course. In this case, Paul's appealing to him as the greater David, as God's promised anointed one. And we are instructed through the example of Christ. Brief comment here. If Christ is only our example, that's damning. You understand that. But Christ for us, Christ as Savior first, and then Christ as example, that's wonderful. Right? He's our forgiveness, our righteousness, our eternal life, and then we look to him, and we consider how he lived, and we seek to live according. Verses 5 and 6, Paul, having pointed the Roman Christians to the word of God, is now going to pray for them. Notice that The scriptures are given for our endurance and encouragement, verse 4. And God is the God of endurance and encouragement in verse 5. Kind of cool. But Paul prays to him. He prays to the Lord as the source of every good thing in the lives of the saints. That's plain. Just as faith is God's gift, so is godliness. Just as faith is God's gift, so is Christian maturity. I don't know if you've thought about your sanctification even like that. It's a gift to you. The Lord is good. All of the good in us, beloved, is of God. And all of our sin is our own. That's the testimony of the scriptures. And clearly Paul knows this, and it's why he prays the way he prays. So what does he pray for? You can put your eyes on the text. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, may he give it to you, to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ, who he is and what he's done, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord and Savior. He prays for harmony amongst the saints. He prays for unity so that with one voice we might glorify God. May that inform how you even think about what we do here on Sunday. When someone stands here and prays, we pray with one voice. We participate in the corporate prayers. When we sing, we sing with one voice. We encourage and exhort and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Think about that. When we sing next Sunday or when we sing later in this service, think about that. That we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice how God is glorified, too, in our unity and in our harmonious living together. I know, 
as one of the pastors here, I know this about you. I know that you want to glorify God. I know you do. I know that we, as Covenant Baptist Church, want to glorify Him. So, all the more, let us work and pray for the unity of the body of Christ here. So that, at all times and pointedly when we gather, we might glorify Him with one voice in one accord. May it be. Verse 7, again, Paul gives an appeal for the saints to accept one another because of Jesus. On account of how Jesus has accepted them, they are to accept one another. They are to receive one another. They're to welcome one another. Those terms are interchangeable. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Again, there we see it, for the glory of God. So consider this, that Jesus welcomes and receives everyone who believes in him. And by everyone, we mean everyone. Do you mean he receives and welcomes those of the weakest faith, brother? He does. He receives and welcomes even those with the least amount of understanding. Consider this too, that Jesus receives us and we live in him by faith. And think about how long you've been a Christian. And think about all that time. Maybe it's a short time, maybe it's a long time. Doesn't matter. Think about all that time that you have trusted Christ and lived as a Christian. And think of all the things of which you have been ignorant regarding his will, regarding his word, regarding his truth. You look back on your life and you're like, man, I did not understand much back then. I didn't know anything. We see that about ourselves, do we not? We do. And yet he receives us and he loves us and he bears with us. And if he receives us like that, how then should we treat each other? That'll, that'll move the needle in your heart as you think about your brothers and sisters in the faith. Should we, in light of this and the way that Christ receives us in spite of our weakness and ignorance, should we reject each other? Should we despise or judge each other? By no means, to use a Pauline phrase. Should we do that? Let's continue to think together. Paul's emphasis in these verses, verses 1 to 7, is that on account of Christ, we are to accept and bear with one another. Now, his assumption in that is we are to accept and bear with one another because we have different convictions about any number of things. He prays that given our differences and our weakness, that God would grant that we would live in unity and harmony to the praise of God's glory. So you realize this. You're thoughtful people. You realize that to have a church that's monolithic is way easier. You get that? To have a monolithic church where everybody thinks the same, looks the same, acts the same is way easier. And you can do it in this world. Many churches have. It's easy to rally people around any number of causes. 
You know, everybody homeschools in this church. Or, you know, we hand out the cards every October in a voting cycle, right? And we tell you how to vote, and we all vote the same way. We all have the same opinions on movies and music and entertainment and whether or not you should have a TV in your house or whatever. We all have the same opinion on food and drink. Here's one. We all have the same opinion on matters of public health, vaccines and masks and viruses. We all have the same perspective on dating and all of that. We have different perspectives on clinical medicine or the use of social sciences. We have different opinions and different habits and patterns and rhythms with respect to how we arrange our households and the disciplines that we instill. If we are the same in all of those ways and we just agree about it all, that's way easier. But it's not what we are. It's not what Covenant Baptist Church is. And it's not what we will ever be. And here's the thing. It's not what the scriptures describe of the church. Nor is it what the scripture prescribes for the church. This side of the resurrection. There will be no disagreement in the new heavens and the new earth. But right now, there will be disagreement over any number of issues of wisdom. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I always am careful. I want to be careful. Do not hear what is not coming out of my mouth. If the issue in question is a clear issue of the law, the law of God, that's different. That's not up for debate. God's law is God's law. Amen? Amen. I'm going to answer for you. So don't hear what I'm not saying. But when it comes to matters of wisdom and conscience, when it comes to here practically living out the high-level truths of the law, there is latitude and freedom. There has to be. There will be difference of opinion amongst the saints. What is better in one case might not be better in another case. What works in one household might not work in another one. And this is why the pastors of CBC doggedly defend Christian liberty. We do it, first of all, to guard the clarity of the gospel. First of all, we do it so that Christ is not obscured. We guard Christian freedom as well so that it is crystal clear that Jesus is what unifies us. You know, I said earlier, you can, you can build a church on debatable matters. You can rally people around matters of wisdom. I personally would want no part of such a church. I hope you wouldn't either. Because the question needs to be asked, what are we rallying around? What are we unified about? Why are we even here? Is it a social club? Like where we agree on matters of prudence? Or are we here because we know Christ is our only hope? And we as pastors... We doggedly defend Christian freedom to protect everyone so that the consciences of a few in any matter do not dictate terms for the whole. That's safer. So let's keep reasoning together. We all have our things, do we not? We've all got our stuff that we are passionate about. Things that we are convinced really matter. I'm talking about wisdom and conscience stuff right now. 
We've got our stuff. We've got our hobby horses. That's fine. It can be actually really good. Nothing that we are considering, again, don't hear what I'm not saying. Nothing that we're considering right now means that we shouldn't engage each other. Nothing that I'm saying means that we shouldn't sharpen each other. Nothing that I'm saying means that we shouldn't seek input from one another on matters of wisdom. Nothing that I'm saying means that we shouldn't discuss matters of conscience. That would be dumb. But what we are considering does inform how we engage. And how we interact. It informs our posture. Speaking frankly with you, as one of us, we all, myself included, we all tend to get way too geeked up over matters of wisdom and conscience. We do. It's as natural as breathing for us to major on the minors and to make matters of wisdom and conscience the thing. Being way too amped up over matters of wisdom and conscience, beloved, is the breeding ground for division in the church. You want to split the church, we want to see the church fracture, then let's, by all means, be more passionate about wisdom calls than we are other things. It'll do it. So like I've said, we've all got our stuff. Not clear matters of the law here, but wisdom and conscience matters. We all have our things. So let's ask ourselves a few questions. As we think about our lives here at CBC, does it bother me if my thing, if my hobby horse, is never emphasized from the front? Does it bother me? If it's never preached from the pulpit? Does it bother me if my thing is never the majority of opinion of these people? If my opinion is never the general consensus of this church, does that bother me? Again, on matters of wisdom. And if our answer to any of those questions is yes, it bothers me a lot, actually. Then there are other questions that we should ask. Like these. What are issues of the law versus what are issues of conscience? How do we distinguish those? Why does this particular issue matter so much to me? What is it that I'm afraid of? And what is it that I value? These are good questions for our contemplation. Here at CBC, and landing point one, again, I warned you about its length. I just want to reiterate where we stand on these things as far as the pastors of this congregation are concerned. Where God's law clearly binds the conscience, we bind the conscience. Where God's law does not clearly bind the conscience, we do not either. In the midst of all that, we love and respect one another as we all seek to grow in our understanding. And we do not seek to build unity on debatable matters. We build unity only on Jesus Christ. That's what we do. So that's point one. Point two, Jesus is the basis of our unity because he is the hope of every saint. Jesus is the basis of our unity because he is the hope of every saint, verses 8 to 12. So Jesus is the hope of every Christian, whether Jew or Gentile. This was always God's plan. This is where Paul begins. He goes in on this, starting in verse 8. 
For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, i.e. to the Jews, in order to show that God is truthful and faithful and that he keeps all of his promises. And this all happened so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul then cites several Old Testament texts to prove this point, that Jesus is the only hope of every saint, whether Jew or Gentile, and that this was always the design. And what result should this produce? It should unite Jew and Gentile, and it should unite the weak and the strong. That's what he's doing. That's what he's conveying. Paul emphasizes that Jesus has received and loved and saved all of his people, both Jews and Gentiles. And there is no difference between them except that Jesus was first promised uniquely to the Jewish nation and came to them before, about flip the Bible off the pulpit, before he was revealed to the Gentiles. And Jesus, hear this now, Jesus has gathered us all. And by us all, I mean every Christian in this room or across the globe, in the past, in the present, and in the future. He has gathered us all from misery and darkness, and he has brought us into the Father's kingdom. We are one flock, and we have one shepherd. And so, it only follows that we should seek to live in unity. One flock, one shepherd. We have not been rescued by Jesus to bicker and argue over debatable matters. We have been rescued by Christ to praise our triune God with one voice. Amen, someone. Why would we be rescued from sin and the evil one and darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's marvelous light to argue and bicker? Makes no sense. We have been rescued by the one shepherd, and we are the sheep of his pasture, so that we might praise the Lord with one voice and one accord. Paul's emphasis in verses 8 and following is our collective need of Jesus. You see that? That's his emphasis. The collective need of all the saints of Christ is his emphasis. And that's what produces unity. It's what drives our love. It's what knits hearts together. All of the other stuff over which we might divide becomes much less important if we keep our need of Christ in focus. Not the fact that you need him, but the fact that we need him, right? You get the difference. It's not just that you need him, I need him too. We need him. If we keep that collective need of Christ in focus, we're on the right track. So let's do an exercise here. You don't have to stand up or anything. Not that kind of exercise. Mentally. I want you to do this genuinely. I want you, as you sit in your seat, I want you to think of the weakest member of CBC from your perspective. I'm not asking you to disparage a brother or sister. I'm just asking you to think honestly like you think anyway. Because I think the same way. Think about the weakest brother or sister at CBC from your perspective. Or if you don't like superlatives, that's fine. I don't either. Think of a weak member from your perspective, however you define that. 
Now, if you were honest, somebody gave you truth serum, perhaps you've been frustrated with that person at points. Perhaps you've had poor thoughts of that person. Perhaps you've been exasperated by that person. Perhaps that person's particular proclivities baffle you. And frankly, so have many of their decisions. You just don't understand. You don't see it. Are you there? Do you have something in mind? Okay. Now, ask yourself this question. In your own mind, ask yourself, does that person that I'm thinking of have a greater need of Jesus than I have? Do I somehow need Jesus less than he does? Do I somehow need Jesus less than her? Beloved, we are all in equal need of Christ. May that pierce your heart and mine as we think about each other. As has been said by many people through history, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. If any of us would be forgiven of our sins, it is only in Christ. If any of us would ever be declared righteous, it's only in Christ. If any of us would ever grow in knowledge or in our piety, our godliness, it is only in Christ. If any of us would ever hear, well done, good and faithful servant, it is only in Christ. We are all in equal need of him. He is all we've got. And that is true for the weakest one here, and it is true for the strongest. And here's another thing. We all need him just as much today as the day we first trusted him. This is because we are still inclined toward all evil. We fight against the corruption of our flesh. We are weak to our own shame. We lament our weakness. We want to honor the Lord and often struggle to do so. We have no righteousness that we could ever present to the Lord. There's nothing in us that we could ever give to him on the basis of which he would love us. And at the same time, from before the foundation of the world, because he is merciful and gracious and abounds in steadfast love, he planned to save you and me. And he planned to do it in a way that's in perfect accord with his justice. That's why Christ came to die. It's not because the Father was angry at us, first of all. It's not that he was angry with us in eternity past. It's that as a result of sin and the curse, because he's good, he hates evil. And so Christ came to satisfy God's justice. What kind of Savior, what kind of God would he be if he just sweeps sin under the rug? 
But as it stands, in his love, he planned for Christ to become a curse for us. He planned for Christ to bear our sins in his body on the tree so that he might look at us and say, well done. So that he might look at us and call us beloved. So that he might no longer be our judge, but our father adopting us into his family. He had always determined that everything that he would require in his law, he would give us in his son. This is the good news. Christ for us. So as you sit here today and you're convicted that you don't have any righteousness and you know you're a sinner, there is only one thing to do. Turn from your sin, turn from your virtue as you see it. Renounce that nonsense and cast yourself on Jesus. He is mighty and able to save. In light of all this, in light of the gospel, that Jesus is all we have, and that's true for the weakest and the strongest, and that we need him just as much today as the day we trusted him. When I look at you, or when you look at me, our thoughts are these. I'm looking at another sinner. Neither of us have a righteousness of our own. All I've got is Christ. And he's all you've got to. And my goodness, is he not merciful? My goodness, is he not loving and tender and compassionate? Isn't he marvelous? So let's walk together, brother. Let's walk together, sister. And remember, one day we'll be together when our king brings heaven down. May this inform how we live. Point three. The Lord is the God of joy, peace, and hope. Point three. The Lord is the God of joy, peace, and hope. This is verse 13. You can put your eyes on it. The very beginning of the verse, God, or excuse me, God, Paul calls God the God of hope. Now, that's not nothing. The God of hope, he calls it. The Lord is the author and source of all true hope. The only way human beings have hope of God's eternal favor is if God affects that on our hearts. And here's the thing about him. He can create that hope in the midst of despair. He can create that hope in the midst of guilt. And he can create it in an instant. He did it for a thief on a cross. He did it for a demoniac, a man oppressed by demons. He did it for a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. He did it for a woman of the city. He did it for thousands on the day of Pentecost. And he's done it for many in this room. Has he not? May he fill us with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Spirit we might abound in hope. Look at the text and see this, that joy and peace come through what? Believing in whom? Jesus And then realize that joy and peace are gifts of God and they are fruit of his spirit. See that? 
Now, the kids in the room, you know this. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, what's the next two? Joy and peace. Look at that. Fruits of the Spirit. And beloved, it is the will of God that we would have joy and peace and hope. What's the will of God for your life, CBC? That you would have joy and peace and hope. Robert Haldane penned these words. He says, hope is natural to the mind of man. And in general, men have hope in the worst of times. That's true. I saw a billboard driving into church this morning about never underestimating the human spirit. Right? We understand that. We have hope in the midst of difficulty. But he goes on. But as to divine things. So now we're talking about something different. As to divine things, hope is not natural to man. It is the fruit of the Spirit of God through faith in His Son. Amen. You see, it is normal. I'm taking my cue right now from a theologian named John Owen in the work that he wrote called Communion with the Triune God. It is normal for us to have hard thoughts of God. And by hard, I mean that he is hard. He's severe. He's scary and threatening. It's normal for us to think of him like that. And we think that it is presumptuous to view him as loving and tender and kind and gentle. Realize this, that if we have hard thoughts of God, and we think it's presumptuous to see him as loving and kind and tender and gentle, that is what the evil one would have us think. See, here's how it goes. We think, all right, God's holy, and he is. We think, he hates sin. He does. He is righteous. You better believe he is. He is the judge of all the earth, and his standard is perfection at a spiritual level. He deserves my service and my worship with my whole heart and soul and mind and strength every moment of my life. We think that, and we think rightly about those things. And then we remember, because we love the Word of God, we remember how he said somewhere, I'm going to bless those who obey my law, and I'm going to curse those who don't. And we remember all the language of punishment and judgment and wrath. And we remember, man, with... Jesus, three years on earth during his ministry, he said some strong, exacting things. And so then we're afraid. We think, this may not go well for me. I I don't meet the test. I mean, good night. Not even close. We think, God has to be frustrated with me. He's got to be, like, low-key, he's got to be angry. Because I know myself. I know my sin. I'm grieved. I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated. Surely he has to be. I know I could love so much more. And I could sin so much less. I have not rendered unto God what he rightly deserves from me. And so we conclude, I have a lot of reasons to be afraid. 
But in concluding that, beloved, here's what we're forgetting. We tend to forget. We forget that everything God requires in his law, he's given us in his gospel. We forget that in every way we have failed, Christ has succeeded. We forget that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes in him. We forget that whoever believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. We forget that God so loved the world. In this way, he loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We forget that God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We forget that Jesus has offered himself for us to the judgment of God and that Jesus has removed all curse from us. We need not fear judgment. We need not fear curse or wrath because Christ went before us and he took it all. So many of the doubts and the suspicions that we have about God's love for us are the result of spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You hear me? So many of the doubts and the suspicions we have about God's love for us are flaming darts of the enemy. They are his searing accusations. He's good at them, and he's got a lot of material to work with. But Paul wrote, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Sounds like what he'd written in chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ now and forever. Paul wrote in verse 13 of chapter 15, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. Sounds like what he wrote in chapter 5, verses 2 to 5. Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's a forward-looking thing. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. How are we going to bear up under trial? How are we going to press through? We rejoice in these things knowing what? That suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love for us has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Saints, may this warm your soul this morning. God loves us. He loves us. It's such a simple thing to say, but it's the sweetest thing in the world. Consider what Jesus said in John 15. In verse 9, if you want to write it down. He said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That is something there. Just as the Father has loved me, says the Son, that's how I've loved you. That's some love there. And then he says, the simple thing, the exhortation, abide there. Live there. Remain there. To which we say, may it be where I want to live. But that's not all. Not just as the fathers loved me, so I've loved you. Beloved, let this also encourage your soul. You love Jesus. 
You love the Lord. You do. Consider the words of Peter. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. It's true of you. It's true of me by God's grace. And now consider this. Putting all this together, in John 16, this is the final like, discourse, right? The upper room on the night that Christ was betrayed, the night before he would die. Keep in mind everything we just said. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. And though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him. Keep that in your mind. Jesus says this to the disciples. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. May we ever keep this in our hearts. That the Father himself loves us. May we always view the Father as the fountainhead of the love and the grace and the mercy that flows to us in Jesus Christ. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might abound in hope. Beloved, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Let's pray.